0: Each week, host Roy Richards, an expert on midlife renewal and author of A Midlife Challenge, Wake Up, will discuss the challenges common to middle age and help guide you to a brighter tomorrow.
1: Now, here's Roy.
0: Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this week's edition of Middle Age Can Be Your Best Age. And I'd like to begin today's program by asking you two questions. One, if your life today is less joyful than you'd like it to be, would you like it to tap into the essential elements of long, lifelong happiness? And second, like most of us, do you enjoy eating chocolate, maybe as part of your favorite candy bar, or perhaps those selectable assorted individual pieces that come in those fancy high-end boxes? And if you answered yes to both of these questions, you're definitely in the right place because today's first guest, Diane Gehart, Ph.D., has just released a brand-new book titled Mindfulness for Chocolate Lovers, A Lighthearted Way to Stress Less and Savor More Each Day. And like most of us, you undoubtedly are aware of the positive effect of mindfulness. Experts tell us uh, it's very positive in reducing stress and solving emotional issues. Um uh, becoming happy, and even physical challenges. But the problem is that uh, although mindfulness would help most of us, uh, most of us lack the understanding, discipline, innovation, or motivation, and willingness to follow through with the mindful meditation practice. And that's where Dr. Gayhart comes in. In her book, she describes surprisingly efficient and fun ways to reduce stress and anxiety, and to increase your daily dose of joy. In effect, she's here to describe how you can live a sweeter life. And here are Diane Gehart's qualifications. She's an award-winning professor of counseling and family therapy at California State University, Northridge. She maintains an active psychotherapy practice in the greater L.A. area, working with adults, couples, and families, to find effective and meaningful ways to deal with their greatest life challenges while they have some fun along the way. And she's, uh, in addition to her new book, uh, Mindfulness for Chocolate Lovers, she's author of numerous prior books written for fellow professionals in family therapy. And hello, Dr. Gihart. We're indeed uh, honored to have you with us here today.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, let's begin with the term mindfulness. Can you uh, give us a layperson's definition of what it means to be mindful? Uh, What does rapidly growing research show about the benefits of mindfulness for our stressed-out, overstimulated society?
1: Absolutely. And there's a lot of, I think, misconceptions about mindfulness. But in essence, mindfulness is about bringing and it's consciously choosing to um, have your mind focus on some Mm. The single um, thing in the present moment. The most yeah. common way we see mindfulness is focusing on your breath and when, while trying to quiet your, your inner thoughts. And most people, when they hear that last part, they think, oh, so I shouldn't be thinking. And yeah. so they try to practice and then they realize, well, their mind keeps wandering. And and the <laughs> truth is, unless you're dead or in a coma, yeah, your mind is going to wander and then you just refocus it back. And it doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. Uh, most people's mind will wander, you know, especially when you first start. More than they're focused, and that's yeah. okay. So, in this practice of consciously trying to focus your mind on a single thing in the present moment, without judging it, and while yeah. being compassionate with yourself, yeah. um, does have just impressive um, research around how it can help us with a full, with a broad spectrum of both physical and mental health issues. And essentially, any um, physical or mental health issue that's exacerbated by stress gets better with mindfulness. Oh, that's great. Well,
0: just about anyone on this planet will tell you that they want to be happy, but what are some of the popular myths that uh, have folks looking for happiness in all the wrong places? I know you identify about five of those in your book.
1: Yes, I do. Um, and we have a lot of them out there. The first uh, one, and I think one of the most popular one, um in the United States at least, is that more money is going to lead to greater happiness. <laughs> that's and what all
0: the soldiers and tell us.
1: <laughs> that's right. And we just, so many of us have this fantasy, if we just win a lottery, we'll be happy. And the truth is that it, that is actually unlike, not likely to make you happy in the long term, but for about three months. And so <laughs> they've actually researched this, and there's actually numbers here. You know, once you hit about 100000 per year, your happiness peaks. And it, once you start making over a quarter million per year, your happiness actually starts to decline, and there's a measurable dip in happiness for those who are most wealthy. That's surprising. Yeah, it is. And then um, and another uh, common myth we have is that more pleasurable experiences are going to bring us happiness, and so, um, and it, this is related to the concept of the hedonistic treadmill. But this is like you know having more vacations great food, um, beautiful clothes, great sex. We, we think all these things that are very pleasurable are going to bring us happiness, but what it does is put puts you on the hedonistic treadmill and the best way to illustrate this is like, I gave my kids ice cream every single night after you know three or four weeks they're going to need whipped cream and nuts and then you know after another three weeks they're going to need cherry then you've got to add a cookie for it to be special because if you have something that's pleasurable all the time the brain acclimates to it and it just becomes background noise. And so... That's another common one. And um, the other thing is just fulfilling your dreams. We all think, you know, once you get married, have a baby, get the promotion, you know, you have the dream vacation or the dream car, whatever your dream is. And yeah, yes, if all your you, dreams
0: are fulfilled, life would be pretty boring if you don't have
1: well, that's something exactly, to look forward to. That's exactly it. It does give you a boost in happiness for about three months, and yeah. then your happiness is back down to normal. So most of us, you know, we've it's we're surrounded in this and um, in our contemporary society, and we either con, even often unconsciously are you still using these myths to guide us to happiness, and we find well, lo and behold, it's not working. Yeah,
0: now, I, this is interesting. You say negative emotions reduce happiness. That's a myth.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, most of us try not to get angry or be sad, and we think if we're not angry or sad. That will be happier. And the research is really fascinating. There is a gender difference here. Um, is that um, the happiness is really correlated with having multiple, um, in the moment, positive emotions on an average day. So enjoying a beautiful sunset, enjoying a good meal, enjoying a good conversation, having many of those. Whether or not you have anger and frustration in between uh, is less relevant. And in general, women have more positive and more negative emotions than men. So, oh, <laughs> so, And then another one is that, you know, if I'm just healthy, you know, I was my grandmother's, both are their favorite, you know, sayings, as long as you have your health. And yeah. ironically, you have to have five major health issues to actually have your happiness dip. And even people who are dealing with cancer, their yeah. happiness level doesn't really dip unless there are multiple other things going on. Yeah, I, th- I
0: guess being healthy, you just sort of assume that's a natural way to be, and it doesn't really make you all that happy unless you uh, come out of some serious health problem. And I'm surprised about that. You need five of them. But,
1: uh, I know. <laughs> but
0: if I recovered from cancer, which I did years back, I was much more happy over that than I had been before I got it. So <laughs> there's nothing yep. to do with that. but. Uh, well, let's talk about your brand new book, Mindfulness for Chocolate Lovers. What is your book designed to teach readers
1: my My book is designed to teach readers simple ways to increase their daily dose of happiness and as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, I mean most people know that they you know uh should be practicing mindfulness it would probably help their stress, mental health, yeah. and physical stress, but it's really hard to do that I've been a psychotherapist for over. 25 years and, you know, asking someone to even meditate for five minutes a day is truly a, lo- a shift in lifestyle. And so I'm really a proponent of doing small incremental changes that really fit for the person that are are going, they're going to, you know, make shifts that they can keep going long term. Yeah. And so, and I really try to also present, we have so much information, so much research on what makes us happy and um, and what in so educating people about that in a, in a straightforward, down to earth, anyone can understand. You know, kind of like we just discussed those five yeah. myths and yeah. getting um, information. I think everyone should have since we have such a such a robust research base as well as ancient you know philosophy like Buddhist psychology telling us the exact same thing.
0: Yeah, well, not to concentrate on the negative, but what are some of the most common pitfalls and challenges? on the path to uh, long-term happiness, and how best can we avoid them or at least survive the pitfalls?
1: <laughs> well, I think the pit, a lot of the pitfalls are falling for those myths, and I, I think it all kind of boils down to this idea that something in the external world has to happen In order for me to be happy.
0: Yeah, that's that's
1: (laughs) Or something can't happen in the external world for us to be happy. I know you talk
0: about, and as a sort of related, you talk about ordinary versus extraordinary happiness. And the ordinary happiness is based mostly on something happening externally and it's not lasting, whereas the extraordinary happiness is the built-in happiness that... uh, doesn't go away just because circumstances change.
1: Absolutely. And it's looking at happiness as not just an emotion that gets elicited when something good happens, but it is a life skill. It is a habit you actually develop in terms of how you encounter, you know, the good in your life as well as yeah. the bad in your life and the problems in your life and how you, your attitude.
0: Yeah, that's for sure. Well, in your book, you offer instruction on chocolate meditation for beginners. Will you uh, quickly run through the practice? What are the steps to uh, chocolate meditation? I never heard of Ab- such a thing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and chocolate meditation is based on a classic met mindfulness exercise that where you mindfully eat. It's called uh, mindful eating because when you eat, there are physical sensations, sight, smell, taste, uh, texture that you can use. Um to focus on in the present moment while quieting your mind. And um, most meditation teachers use a raisin, which is a fairly neutral object. And I started teaching mine like, 20 I like years, years ago. Better. I know. Well that's know. Well, I was traveling all over the place doing, you know, um, speaking um, and doing workshops, and I would lug these, you know, boxes of small raisins in my um, suitcase, and they'd get crushed when I arrived. So I said, yeah. what can I bring instead? And I am a chocolate lover. And I started using the chocolate, and because most of us do have either a strong or some emotions around chocolate, we really like it, we don't, there are a lot of, you know, it's a sinful thing for some people, it's an indulgence, special treat, there's childhood memories. worry about the
0: calories, too. That's right.
1: (laughs) So there's so many, we have so many more emotions around chocolate, positive and negative, that it's a much, you actually get a lot, it, it sounds like a joke at first, but there's a lot to it. And um so what it basically involves is you get a piece of chocolate i always like to use a a wrapped chocolate because then i can um we can do a meditation where you hit all five senses Uh and you begin by just observing it um putting in your hand observing it wrapped and trying to really approach it from a beginner's mind you know just noticing the colors of the light reflects off of it smelling feeling the texture you listen to it as you unwrap, and then you do it again, noticing the colors, texture, scent, and how it may be similar or different. And one of the most important parts is I then have you move the chocolate up to your lips, but don't bite, and just watch what goes through your mind. You <laughs> know, so frustration, anticipation, dread. If you don't like chocolate, you're dreading it. But all these thoughts will go through your mind, and it gives you an opportunity to watch that, and that ability to observe your mind in action. Which going to help as you strengthen that ability. I recommend practicing it daily, but yeah. as you strengthen this ability, you can watch your mind in action around problems. You know, in the real world outside of chocolate meditation, but you develop that like ability. This seems like a much more
0: interesting exercise than just concentrating on your breath.
1: <laughs> it absolutely is. It absolutely is. And the other part then is, especially as you eat it, for a lot of people, they get so much benefit out of. The instructions are to not judge this chocolate taste as good or bad, but just notice its qualities and suspend judgment. And that's really hard for most people to do, even for 10 seconds. Um, But people find that, especially those two parts, watching the mind in action, suspending your judgment of something being good or bad and just experiencing it um, becomes very easy to translate to the outside world. The other thing I love about chocolate meditation, it's very hard. I think One of the hardest things is even to remember to meditate when you're trying to develop a practice with chocolate meditation, get a pretty bowl, put, put a bowl of chocolates on your desk and every day, you know, at coffee or lunch break or whatever. Um, do your, you know, two, three minutes of chocolate meditation and it does make a difference.
0: Do a lot of your clients gain a lot of weight. <laughs> <laughs> when,
1: do you know what people find? They actually find it. They use mindful eating um, with people with eating disorders, including overeating, because when you oh. eat something mindfully you know, so many people say, "Oh my God, I normally yeah, can eat ten of these mindlessly, but I just had one slowly, and I'm totally satisfied yeah, I don't when need you're anymore.
0: eating to overcome a bad emotion or something and not mindful of it, just snacking while you're watching t v or something. Yep. that's not mindful eating <laughs> that's what so actually it
1: can, <laughs> it can actually help you lose weight if you do it you know correctly. If your problem has been mindlessly overeating the the chocolate meditation will actually help you you know, reduce that tendency to overeat. Yeah. So that's that's fun. I know. uh,
0: In order to become happy, you tell us to befriend our problems. What in the heck do you mean by befriending a problem?
1: (laughs) I know. It's kind of a strange term. But what I mean by that, and most Western philosophers as well as Eastern, you know, traditions – They all, at the root of every kind of psychological, you know, contemporary theory we have is that the reason we develop psychological symptoms like depression or anxiety um, is because uh, in some way we are trying to reject or deny a reality that is out there. You know, I'm feeling distanced from my partner. My kids aren't achieving the way I want to. I'm not getting the promotion I want So we, our mind goes through these kind of mental gymnastics to try to deny that reality, twist it so we can't, and so we don't emotionally feel that the the emotions of disappointment, anger, hurt. And so the concept of befriending is allowing yourself to feel those difficult emotions, and you know most most of us avoid it. That's kind of natural, and but it's just you know kind of being vulnerable, letting yourself experience it. And once you get practice with this, you realize every um, it really shifts everything when you can just accept it. It will. It only lasts for a certain amount of time, and then you're able to more consciously respond, make better choices because you're seeing things clearly. You're accepting that reality and figuring out good ways to deal with and it.
0: And then you can be and, able to come up with solutions once you really understand the problem and that it isn't. You know, you don't you can, have to you know, worry about what might happen.
1: Yeah, and two of the places I commonly see um, befriending problems uh, really being an issue is if you are unhappy in your marriage and you try to pretend like you're not. You know, you can. I know pe- many. I know hundreds of people. I've worked with hundreds of clients who spent decades pretending, um, but that results in depression, anxiety, stress, and you know, all these other things, and or being in a job where you're unhappy but you're pretending like you're not. So you can spend decades, you know, doing a developing yeah. a lot of mental health issues because you want to deny that reality and it feels like oh my god if i accept that the marriage might be in trouble or i really don't yeah. like this job that catastrophe is going to happen um yeah. it's not the case because what's what strange is once you accept it, it is amazing how many more possibilities for addressing the problem yeah. actually come to mind and seem realistic to you well
0: here's another term in your book that uh Uh, It's very interesting. Crazy wisdom, which you say is the back door to happiness when mindfulness is the front door. What is this crazy (laughs) wisdom and how best do we employ it?
1: Well, crazy wisdom is a term that comes from Buddhist psychology and it has certainly transitioned into a lot of western practices as well but you know when we describe mindfulness make it's kind of logical it makes sense how that would help you you know reduce your stress we can describe it measure it but crazy wisdom is about playing with opposites and logic to kind of cut through those assumptions um, that have us stuck in life and it really opens us up to new ways of looking at things and kind of freeing us from the patterns but it's about using humor um, to kind of reframe the situation, to think of things differently. Often we take ourselves way too seriously,
0: yeah, and
1: if you can true. step back and laugh at some of it, and, you know, not all humor is therapeutic. Um, and if you're you know making fun of somebody else, putting them down, you're even putting down yourself is not as therapeutic. But the um, crazy wisdom um, humor is about kind of cutting through some of our just assumptions that keep us stuck.
0: Yeah. Well, I won't go into this. You talk about snakes that can get in your path. I guess those are relationships or people that uh, cause problems, and I thought that was fascinating. We don't really have time to talk about it, but the uh, like the overgiving that uh, dazzles you with helpfulness and generosity in the beginning, <laughs> and you know they're too good to be true. Absolute charm. I love these uh, <laughs> And then the drama king or queen, I've known a few of those in my time.
1: (laughs) Yep, absolutely. Well, at the
0: end of uh, Chapter 7, you make a statement that seems strange to me. You say, fierce compassion is the key that unlocks the door to extraordinary happiness. What in the heck is fierce compassion, and how can anything fierce lead to lasting happiness?
1: (laughs) Well, um, fierce compassion... um is again uh, a term I borrowed uh from Buddhist psychology, where oh, right. in Buddhism they actually try to teach compassion in a very concrete um manner so and and one of the the things that they talk about is that when you 're compassionate to somebody that you love or care for or are friends with that 's yeah. not really compassion in their definition because it's just the good business transaction you're nice yeah. to me and I'm nice back we 're buds, you know yeah. <laughs> but they talk about where you really learn. Compassion, in, the, in that kind of, um, in a more spiritual sense, is when you learn to have compassion for someone who has hurt you. Yeah,
0: that's, that's when you, very tough to do. But
1: uh... yes, and when you can learn to have compassion for even those people who have hurt you, you develop a type of under- acceptance of what humanity is, how we yeah. interact with each other, even those we love. We we step on each other's toes. We hurt each other. Um, And sometimes it's not intentional, and sometimes if we feel vulnerable, we strike out, and there's a bit of intention there. And so the fierce compassion is being able to, even after you get hurt, to have enough um, courage, really, to open your heart back up again. It doesn't mean putting yourself in the line of fire again. (laughs) It means being, um, you know, it doesn't mean you don't get to protect yourself again, but it means to not dehumanize the other and that you Too bad more never, of our
0: politicians these days don't have fierce compassion for the other side.
1: <laughs> well, yes, I, I, I agree. If, if both sides could develop a little more fierce compassion for the other, yeah. I, I think things would be in a better place. And that's, yeah, just, that's you know, true. never allowing, because once we dehumanize someone else, we yeah. are very likely to take very inhumane action and become dehumanized ourselves. Yeah, and that is why they sure. see it as so um, critical to happiness is that ability to still keep your heart open. doesn't mean you're a fool again. doesn't mean you put yourself in the yeah. light of fire again,
0: yeah. but it
1: means you don't stop seeing the humanity in the other because as soon as you do that, you lose your own. Well,
0: where's the best place for our listeners to go to preview and purchase your new book, Mindfulness for Chocolate Lovers?
1: Well, um, the book is available We're pretty much wherever uh, books are sold, um, you know, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, yeah. the publishers, um, Roman and Littlefield, um, I have a website that goes with the book, which is um, MindfulnessForChocolateLovers.com. Oh, and right. you can also get links there. And all the, there are me- free meditations. All the worksheets in the book are there. So there are a lot of free resources that go with the book for oh, anyone okay. who's interested.
0: Okay, that sounds great. And if they want to learn more about you and your practice, you also have a website, DianeGehart.com, I noticed that. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. And the last name is spelled G E H A R T. So Yeah, that's.
0: Yes, well, and I have re-
1: lo- oh. Oh. I have a lot of re- resources too just about general mental health topics on that website yeah, like depression and anxiety. Yeah,
0: that's great. Well, I'd like to conclude this section with words of praise taken from the book summary on Amazon. Amazon states that uh, an accomplished and honored professor, psychotherapist, author and chocolate connoisseur Diane Gehart Uh, identify surprisingly efficient and fun ways to increase your daily dose of joy and to teach you step-by-step how to identify the essential elements necessary for long-term happiness and add them to your everyday habits and develop an unshakable sense of joy that sustains you in good times and bad and engage your most painful life circumstances to dramatically improve your life. I love that one and navigate common pitfalls and challenges and transform how you journey through life, making it a joy ride regardless of stormy weather or unfortunate, unforeseen circumstances. And once again, the book title is Mindfulness for Chocolate Lovers, A Lighthearted Way to Stress Less and Savor More Each Day by Diane R. Gearhart, Ph.D. And thanks to me and Diane for taking your time with us today.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
0: And best of success in your book and all that you do. And now, if you'll excuse me, I have a uh, genuine earning, uh, craving to dig into that box of chocolates up in the kitchen. <laughs> <So bye for laughs> Just now.
1: do it mindfully. Just yeah. do it mindfully.
0: I'll do that. Bye for now. Bye bye. Well, that was a most enlightening interview with Dr. Diane Gayhart, wasn't it? I know it really helped my uh, helped me. I very much understand the value of mindfulness meditation, but so often when I try it, I have difficulty clearing my mind of all the extraneous thoughts that keep butting in and Dr. Gerhardt offers some simple, realistic solutions, like concentrating on a piece of chocolate, and now that's mindful eating of chocolate by the way, not a compulsive pig out. And I'm certain you'll want to preview and perhaps purchase Diane's great new book, Mindfulness for Chocolate Lovers. And on my October 21st program, I spoke about responses you can make to fight uh, hidden age discrimination during a job interview, sometimes not so hidden. And remember, you can go back and listen to prior episodes through our program website anytime at your convenience. But today I'm going... Uh, to expand on the subject and talk about some common mistakes that older job seekers often make. And please note, I'm not just talking about job seekers in their late 50s or 60s. I am also talking to you 40-something men and women who may be competing against job seekers in their late 20s or early 30s, certainly not unusual in today's job market, especially for tech-oriented jobs. And let me give credit where credit is due. Uh, most of my thoughts are taken from an article by Kate Lopez of thejobnetwork.com that appeared recently in our local Sunday newspaper. First, let me say I hope you never find the need to job search, but let's face it, you don't want to remain in that dead end job that you to test for the rest of your working years. And also, with today's lightning face of technological innovation, your present job may be here today gone tomorrow through absolutely no fault of your own. So let's start a discussion with the obvious. Hitting the open job market can be tough if you're over 40. I've been there and done that, and after a whole year of looking, I ended up with a job far less lucrative and challenging than my prior executive position, and I didn't remain in that job very long. So let's begin with the obvious, you aren't looking for an entry-level or low-level position with a salary geared toward new grads who live with their parents or with seven roommates. You can't change what's out there, but you can self-correct several errors that may be preventing you from getting a job offer. And mistake number one is not promoting yourself and building a professional presence on social media, and I'm talking about media like LinkedIn or perhaps Twitter. This professional presence is second nature for your younger competitors and We all know that personal accounts like Facebook are better left private, and you're a commentator on that and you shouldn't but that shouldn't keep you from publishing and promoting a successful or a separate professional profile on LinkedIn and broadcast your professional profile and accomplishments while keeping details of your personal life private. And here's mistake number two, holding on and broadcasting outdated tech. Your contact info typically is the first thing a person hiring looks at when they review your resume. So don't kick your resume off with an AOL.com or Hotmail address that is 10 years or more out of date. Fair or not, this outdated address makes it look like you're not really up on the current state of things, and and it could color how they read the rest of your resume and not for the better. And here's mistake number three. This is probably the most crucial of all, not leveraging your network. As an experienced job seeker and accomplished professional, you have a whole network of former colleagues, clients, and acquaintances in your field of expertise. And I'll bet that 90% or more of them would be more than happy to assist you in your job search if you ask them. Whatever Whatever you do, don't be afraid to make contact and reconnect with these former associates See if they have information on who may be hiring, even leads. You never know who might be able to put you in touch with the right person until you ask them. My wife one time talked to a fellow at a gas station, and it turned out he was a a, a CEO of a new company that was looking for a person just about like me to be chief financial officer. Unfortunately, they couldn't pay what I needed, but it was a great lead anyway. And here's mistake number four, writing a kitchen sink resume and then sending it out to everyone. Not every bit of experience should go into every resume. As best you can, target each resume uh, sent out or posted to the specific job you seek and the nature of the employer. Recruiters and hiring managers usually have limited time to scan resumes. We're talking seconds here, so you will need to tell your story effectively in a highly limited space. And if you're 45, the hiring manager won't be particularly interested in the work you performed uh, right out of school at age 23. Your resume should be no longer than two pages and concentrate just on the last 10 years or so. Because resumes these days are submitted and handled almost exclusively digitally, and tailor each one you send out to the particular job you're applying for. How does your experience, qualifications, and accomplishments relate specifically to the position they are seeking to fill? Why are you that one special person they're listening for or searching for? And here's mistake number five, not taking... Uh, job descriptions are taking job descriptions literally I, I should say taking them too literally not not taking them how often have you read a highly promising job description but then realize i don't have two or three of the ten listed requirements so i won't even bother to apply wrong if you have the uh... if you like the sound of the job and believe you could excel in it and be happy in it apply Job descriptions also are an employer's wish list for the ideal candidate. In fact, they may be flexible on certain aspects of experience level or on parts of the job itself. No, don't waste your time and the employers by applying for positions where you're clearly not qualified, but you have nothing to lose by applying if you feel you're otherwise a good fit, especially if you know you're a fast learner and can convey that both in your resume and later in an in-person interview. Just be certain that your resume reflects why, overall, you are a great fit for the job at hand. And here's mistake number six, waiting for the perfect job. And in my job search years ago, that was one of my biggest mistakes, I'd been CFO of a failing insurance company and was hesitant to go after a lower financial job in another company. Also, my family wanted to remain in Southern California. We loved the weather and most everything else about it. And, of course, as someone who's put in a lot of time, care, and learning to your career and your professional skills, you deserve the next job that works for your personal and professional goals but, and this is true at any age, the perfect job may never come around. It doesn't tend to, does it? So be open to other positions, especially in high-potential employers that aren't moving up to the next seniority level immediately and may pay practically the same as you're making now or even less than you're making if they have everything else you want. The issues are these. Do you honestly believe you would relish going to work each weekday morning and perform the tasks advertised in the job listing? Can you foresee the opportunity of early and steady progression up the corporate ladder? If this is a startup or an early-stage company, do they offer a personal ownership interest that could lead to a big payout later? And even uh, should the startup fail, Would the uh, advertised position provide a wide range of new experience that would make you highly marketable over your next job search? Bottom line, if the potential job sounds like a decent fit for your skills and experience and you like the employer's mission, the workday atmosphere, and the colleagues you will be working with and for, give that job a serious second look. Also, if the job requires relocation, Is your new city of residence acceptable for the whole family? Being flexible and keeping an open mind are key aspects to any job search, especially at middle age. So if you're age 46 or 52, obviously you consider yourself a highly prized veteran, but remain acutely aware of the image you're putting out there. And beyond all else, whatever your background, keep the current version of yourself updated and engaged above all else. Keep your network active and don't be too shy to ask for help. Those you ask will want to provide it. And in closing, one more thing. Are you certain you have in mind a clear picture of the ideal position you're searching for, your dream position? It is possible to thoroughly enjoy what you do to earn a living. It doesn't have to be uh, fun only on the weekends and in the evening. Uh, you, uh, You need a vision you can hold up for comparison with any real job opportunity that comes along. And in my book, A Midlife Challenge Wake Up by Roy C. Richards, I have a whole chapter on taking a mental vacation, and a comprehensive exercise on how to define your ideal position. No matter how hectic your life and no matter how much financial pressure you may be under to find a new job, this mental vacation exercise is well worth your time and energy. Otherwise, your career may consist of bouncing from one non-fulfilling job to another until you die or retire unfulfilled. And you can preview and purchase a copy of my book, Printed or ebook form at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or through our website MiddleAgeRenewal.com. And whether you're searching for a new job out of desire or necessity, best of success in finding that one job and lifestyle right for you and every member of your household. Bye for now. Please tune again and again next for our next episode of Middle Age Can Be Your Best Age when my guests will uh, talk about finding peace one piece at a time.